ordinary person would take on the badge of and take on the name oddball as a badge of honor. I mean, almost no one would see that as a good thing. To be called odd or strange or bizarre or crazy. A.W. Tozer once wrote that, the Christ, that Christians are strange, though. In his book, The Root of Righteousness, he said, a real Christian is an odd number or an oddball. He goes on to say, he feels supreme love for one he has never seen. He talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of someone else. He empties himself in order to be full. He admits he is wrong so that he can be declared right. He goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he's weakest, richest when he is poorest, happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so that he can live. He forsakes in order to have, gives away so that he can keep. He sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. That's strange, isn't it? That's odd. When a person is redeemed by the finished work of Christ, redeemed, purchased, ransomed, saved by Christ and his finished work, that person will begin living by a different set of assumptions. They'll live with a different worldview than other people. It's like putting on new glasses from which you see everything. It doesn't mean that our lives completely change all at once, but we begin to see everything differently. We have new priorities, new desires, new motivations, and so forth. And of course, the result of this is that the Christian will begin to be more and more out of step with the wider culture and the people around them who don't know Christ. They will sound and appear more and more odd. David Guzik said, he said, the gospel, when properly proclaimed and lived, will make some people think we're crazy. The gospel, when properly proclaimed, taught, and properly lived, that's important to put in there, and properly lived, will make some people think we're nuts, crazy, goofy, foolish, foolish. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. I have pretty regular correspondence back and forth with someone I, I care about deeply and love, and, but he is not a Christian. And, and uh, when, I, when I present the gospel to him, it's not uncommon for him in his emails or, or messages back to me or even when we're face-to-face to tell me how foolish I am for believing what I say I believe. Who wants to be called a fool? I mean, in our flesh, we don't like that. I want to be thought of as odd and strange. Well, in our text today, I want, I want to take a look at two men, Paul and Agrippa. Paul, in our text, is called a, excuse me, he's accused of being a crazy Christian. 
And Agrippa describes himself in a very interesting way. Agrippa describes himself as almost a Christian. Paul is a crazy Christian and Agrippa is almost Christian. And by the time we get done, I hope you see that to be a crazy Christian like Paul is actually to be perfectly and graciously sane. To really be thinking clearly about ultimate reality. And to be almost a Christian like like Agrippa is actually the height of insanity. So the scene is Paul is giving his defense before King Agrippa and a Roman governor named Festus. Agrippa's wife Bernice is there. We know that. Interestingly, it's not only his wife, but it's also his sister. Okay, uh, Agrippa was, was a very, very immoral, wicked man who married his sister, among other things. And there's, another, there's others there as well. And Paul is making his defense. But Paul isn't making a defense like, hey, really, I should be let go. He's making his defense of how he became a Christian and of his commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 24, it says this, Governor Festus, as Paul is proclaiming Christ and telling how he was converted and what Christ had now sent him to do, Governor Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul's bearing witness to Agrippa, and Festus interrupts very rudely, I might add. Right? He didn't ask, he didn't say, hey, can I interject something here? He interrupts with a loud voice so everyone could hear. And he said, Paul, you're a maniac. The word mind, when Festus said you're out of your mind, the word mind is in, in English is the, is the, comes from the Greek word mania, from which we get maniac or maniacal. Festus is accusing Paul of being insane, of being crazy, of being more than just odd, being out of his mind. Jesus was accused of being crazy. You remember that? Jesus was accused by his family of being nuts. And Jesus said this would happen to his followers. Now, sometimes this is a tough pill for us to swallow. But Jesus said, this is going to happen. Expect it. Here's what he said in Matthew 10. He said, if they called the master of the house Beelzebul or the prince of demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, if they call Jesus the prince of demons, how much more his followers? Jesus said, if that's what they've done to me, what what are they going to do to you? So what did Festus hear and observe in Paul that made him accuse Paul of being insane. What did he he hear and observe in Paul as, as Paul was before Festus and Agrippa giving his defense? What did he hear and observe in Paul that's just like, this guy is nuts? 
Well, I, I, there's four things I, that I, I, I see in this text, actually in the entire chapter. So I'm going to go back a little bit, not just in these 10 verses, but the entire chapter's entire defense before Agrippa and Festus. The first thing that Festus noticed was that Paul was happy even in the worst of situations. Paul had joy even in the darkest or the worst of circumstances he found himself in. We see in this passage that Paul was a prisoner and yet he was happy. He was a prisoner and yet he had joy. He considered himself blessed. Now, if you were wrongly accused of something and put into prison and you said, I'm a blessed man or a woman, someone might say, you are nuts. That's what Festus saw in Paul. Back in verse 2 of this chapter, when given the opportunity to speak, Agrippa says, Paul, it's, you got the floor, take it, take it away. Here's how Paul began his defense with Agrippa. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. He said, I consider myself fortunate to be here today and speak to you, Agrippa. The word fortunate is most often translated blessed. can be translated happy. Jesus uses this word over and over again in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are... Those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so forth. He said, Paul said, I consider myself blessed to be able to address you today, King Agrippa. Why would Paul have found himself fortunate of anything given the circumstances he found himself in? He was a prisoner. Agrippa was not a good man, not a, not a moral man, not a, not a person Paul could, a, could appeal to his better senses or anything like that. And yet Paul considered him blessed to be standing before King Agrippa. That's nuts. But here's the thing, and we've seen this over and over in the book of Acts, is that Paul was a man who knew that the Lord was with him. He always knew that Christ was with him to strengthen him and give him the help that he needed. And not only that... But Paul was a man on fire for Christ and Christ's purposes and what Christ had called him to do. And Paul knew, I've been called to proclaim the gospel to princes and lords and kings, and I'm standing before them right now. And Paul saw himself as fortunate. He knew, Paul knew that Christ was orchestrating it all for his glory and for Paul's good, and this made him happy. And this, no doubt, threw Festus for a loop. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, we rejoice, think about how strange this is. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We Rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says. Do we have God's perspective in our pain? In pain, do we have God's perspective such that 
We wouldn't put a plastic smile on our face and just be giddy and giggly. Paul was not that way. But do we have God's perspective such that in the midst of our pain and loss and hardship, whatever it might be, large or small, that we can have joy? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, and he brings these two things together. It's not sorrow or joy. He says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Athanasius He was a man who was probably the chief defender against the heresy of Arianism. Arianism was a heresy that attacked the deity of Christ. Athanasius was was around in the 4th century. And at one point in his ministry, as he was laboring to combat this heresy that was spreading widespread throughout the church, someone said to Athanasius, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And his response is just, it's epic. He says, well then, I am against the whole world. But you know what? He had a secret weapon. And his secret weapon was rejoicing. In the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the toil and the labor, it was rejoicing. He said this, let us be courageous and rejoice always. Let us consider and lay to heart that while the Lord is with us, our foes can do us no hurt. But if they see us rejoicing in the Lord, contemplating the bliss of the future, mindful of the Lord, deeming all things in his hand, they are discomfited and turn backwards. If our enemies see us rejoicing when we should be weeping and complaining and murmuring, they are discomfited and turned backwards. And I think we see that with Paul. Paul was happy, even as a prisoner. And, he, and this made him seem like a maniac to Festus. Second, Paul claimed to have an encounter with the risen Christ that changed the direction of his life in a moment. In a Moment. He wasn't perfected in a moment, but it changed the direction in a second, in a moment. Verses 13 to 18 of our text is Paul telling about his conversion experience. How he was a violent hater of Christ and the church and the gospel and was laboring with all of his might to destroy this message about Jesus. And he was hauling Christians off to prison. And when he was able to cast in his lot for them to be put to death. He was a murderer, at least accomplice in murder. He was a violent persecutor. He was on his way to Damascus with letters from the Jewish authorities to take Christians from there and bring them back and have them imprisoned. When a bright light, it says, brighter than the sun, shone and blinded him. And the Lord spoke to him. And basically the Lord says, Paul, you've been the chief persecutor of my people, you're not going to do that anymore. You're actually going to be the chief missionary of my cause to the ends of the earth. And you know what? Paul was changed in an instant. In an instant. Paul says in verse 19, after all this happened, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus... What city was he heading to? 
Damascus. When he met Christ, he went first to Damascus. And when he was given his vision back, he went to the synagogue and began proclaiming Christ. Immediately. In Acts chapter 22, verse 10, it says that even as Paul, I just imagine being on the ground, blinded, he can't see anything. He asked a question to the Lord. After he asked, who are you, Lord? And, and Jesus, of course, revealed himself. Paul says, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? He said, put me to work. I'm living for you now. You talk about a 180-degree change in a moment. For Paul, this was the watershed moment of his life. There was, no, there was no experience later in life that he looked to. He looked to this time when he encountered Christ, the living, risen, authoritative, sovereign Lord of the universe. And it changed him. He lived from this vantage point all the rest of his days. He never got over it, ever. He was stunned to the end of his life that Christ would graciously save him. Toward the end of his life, Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is, uh, 1 Timothy was written A.D. 63 or 4, something like that. He was saved probably around A.D. 34. So about 30 years later, toward the end of his life, a couple years before he was executed, here's what Paul said. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He never got over it. He never got past this encounter with Christ when Christ came to him as a violent, murderous, raging persecutor and said, you're mine. You're mine. Paul was changed. And so, when someone says, well, you can't change overnight, it's a lie. That's a lie. Can I say it louder? That's a lie. Amen. Now, you're not going to be perfect overnight. We're not going to be perfect till Christ comes. Right? We're going to... We sang it earlier. When we no longer struggle with sin. When we no, no longer sin and fight against sin and temptation, all of that. When is that? When Christ comes. But until then, we'll struggle against sin... We won't be perfected. Paul wasn't. He, he, in Philippians 3, said, I, I've not arrived. I'm not perfect yet. But real, decisive, directional change can happen in a moment. Paul, the direction of Paul's life was radically and inexorably altered. I mean, you, there's no more stark Example we can think of than Paul. I've heard it put this way. It's not the perfection of one's life, but the direction of a life that provides evidence of a saving encounter with Christ. Paul had encountered Christ. He did a 180. I, I imagine Festus is hearing this, and there's other reasons why Festus thought he was nuts, as we've talked about and will further. 
But as Paul is hearing, or excuse me, as Festus is hearing Paul's testimony, he thought, you're crazy. You're nuts. Third, Paul cared more about witnessing to Jesus than his own personal freedom. He's standing before powerful men, a governor, a Roman governor, a Jewish king, and he is boldly proclaiming Christ to them. He's boldly proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ to them. He says this in verse 22, To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Paul was unconcerned with the fact that he was standing before men of great power. Earlier in chapter 26, or actually I think it's in chapter 25, it says when when Agrippa and and his wife Bernice came, it says they came with great pomp. They came with great, the surroundings around them, all of of them coming was, 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 was big, it was elaborate, it was powerful, it was full of great pomp. Paul, this little, probably looked like a weakling, beat up from all the times he was beat up, stood before them and spoke boldly about Christ to them. Verse 26, Paul says, I am speaking boldly to Agrippa, a man of great power. And we're going to look at this more in just a bit, but he, he presses upon Agrippa. He says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I love that. You guys ever seen the movie, um, A Few Good Men? Anyone seen that movie? It's been a long time since I've seen it. But that, 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 uh, that court scene, Tom Cruise, the prosecuting attorney, right, questioning this great marine general, very powerful, and he says, and he, he's just hammering him away. And I just see Paul not being disrespectful, but saying, do you believe Festa or Agrippa? I know you do. I know you believe the prophets. You've heard this before. Festus probably dumbfounded, right? I mean, just dumbfounded. The last verse of, our ch- of this chapter, it says this, Agrippa turned to Festus and said, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul had other priorities. It was not his own personal freedom. So Festus thought he was a maniac. Number four, Paul had his eyes set on an an eternal hope. And so he lived accordingly and he was seen as nuts. I want you to see in verse 23 one particular phrase. Here's what Paul says, verse 22 and then into 23. I stand here testifying both to small and great that the Christ must suffer. And it's this phrase, that being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light to both our people and the Gentiles. Paul said Christ was, not only did Christ rise from the dead, but he was the first to rise from the dead. That's important. He was the first to rise from the dead. In other words, he's he's not the only one that rises from the dead, 
Paul believed in the resurrection of Christ, absolutely, but he also believed in the resurrection of believers to everlasting life. And and this governed Paul's understanding of his purpose in life profoundly. Profoundly. You've maybe heard this phrase, uh, some people are so heavenly minded, they are of no earthly good. Ever heard that before? I've never met that person. I've never met someone that's just too heavenly minded. They just think way too much about heaven or eternity. I've never met that person. I want to be more like that. It impacted the way Paul lived. You see, Paul was more concerned with the eternal weight of glory in the future than with glory now. He was more concerned with the approval of Christ at his resurrection, at his resurrection, than the approval of men. You know what that means? He cared more about what Jesus thought about him than what his neighbor thought about him. He was more concerned with eternal comfort and therefore stored up treasures in heaven rather than temporary comfort stored up on earth. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. It's a great, great little book. And in it, he talks about a man named William Borden. I'd never heard of this man before. And I think that's kind of the point. William Borden was a young man in the early 1900s He was a graduate of Yale. He came from a wealthy family. He was the heir of great wealth. But he had a heart for Muslims. And so he left all of the opportunities that he had here and went to Egypt. And he ended up dying as a young man, I think at the age of 25 or 26. And Randy Alcorn and a friend were in Egypt. And uh, this friend took Randy to the tombstone of this man, William Borden. And the last line inscribed on his tombstone in Cairo, Egypt, said this, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You hear that? Apart from faith in Jesus, there's no explanation for a life, the life that this man lived. In other words, he was so sold out for Christ... He gave himself unreservedly to Jesus. Now, what it looks, certainly what this looks like will differ for each of us, but there's something deep in each true Christian that wants to be known in the same way. I mean, there's something deep in us that wants to be known in a way where when we die, people would look to Christ and say, He is amazing. And it's the only explanation for how this woman or this man lived. Paul had his eyes set on the eternal hope of resurrection. Of resurrection. He knew it was coming. And he was considered a madman because he believed and lived as though it was true. You know, Jesus put it this way. uh, He said... um, This is just a practical way this works out in our lives. He said, when you throw a feast, don't invite those who can invite you in return to their feast. But when you throw a feast, invite the invalids, invite the blind, invite the poor, invite those people. 
Those who can't pay you back. And you will be repaid in the resurrection. You'll be repaid. You'll be rewarded in the end by Christ. You'll receive the approval of Jesus when he says, well done, come on in, enter into the joy of your master. That's what Paul looked to. That's what he looked to. It motivated his life. And Festus thought he was nuts because of it. Well, Paul didn't leave the accusation of, of his insanity alone. He didn't, leave that, he didn't let that stand. His response to the accusation of insanity was, I am not a madman. I am speaking true and rational words. Or the New American Standard puts it this way, I'm speaking words of sober truth. I'm totally being completely sober, completely true in what I say. Paul was the most sane person in the room. Right? The king of glory, the the sovereign king of the universe had encountered Paul and Paul believed in Christ and lived as though he were truly the king of the universe. And what Paul does, and we've already talked about this, but he begins to press the truth of his message on the conscience of Agrippa. In verse 26 and 27, he says this, For the king knows about these things. King Agrippa knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. He's like, Festus, forget about you. I'm speaking to Agrippa. He knows about these things. He's heard about these things. I'm speaking boldly to him. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. If you hear what Paul is saying, he's saying, this hasn't, he's heard about this. It hasn't been done in a corner. This was, this was all done publicly. Christ was crucified in public in Jerusalem. He was raised from the dead. Many people had eyewitness encounters with Jesus. So, so Agrippa had heard about this. And then Paul says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I know you believe. Paul seems to think that Agrippa knew and understood a good deal about the story of Christ and even believed the Old Testament prophets, which for Paul would have been a beeline to Christ because it all points to him. But sadly, Agrippa's response to Paul is heartbreaking. In verse 28, here's what he says. In a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa's saying, don't try to convert me so quickly. Don't try to get me to buy into this just like that. It seems as though Agrippa considered himself almost a Christian, like he was... He was being drawn into this. He was being sucked into this message Paul was preaching. He says, don't try to get me saved so fast. In fact, the King James James translation of this verse translates it this way. Agrippa saying this, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Agrippa was almost a Christian. He believed. He had heard the message of Christ. He had even had a certain kind of belief in the prophets. He was almost a Christian. 
Almost. How many people consider themselves almost Christians, but are more like Agrippa than Paul? J.C. Ryle, who was a minister in England in the 1800s, describes those who are almost Christians this way. He says, they admire the lives of holy people. They read good books. And they give money to good objects or good causes. But unhappily, they never seem to get beyond a certain point in their faith. They never come out boldly on Christ's side. They never seem to get beyond a certain point in their religion. They never, uh, or, um, excuse me, I went back and read that again. Um, They never confess Christ before men. They never give up petty inconsistencies, never take up the cross. They often tell you that they mean and intend and hope and purpose someday to be more decided Christian. Sounds like me when I was growing up as a teen. They know that they are not quite what they ought to be at present, and they hope one day to be different. But the convenient season never seems to come. Meaning and intending, they go on. Meaning and intending, they go off the stage. Meaning and intending, they live. And meaning and intending, they often die. Kind, good-natured, respectable people, not enemies, but friends to Paul and you and I. They are like Agrippa, almost Christian. Well, it needs to be said that almost Christians are not Christians at all. Right? An almost Christian is a non-Christian. And unfortunately, maybe in a worse spot because they're probably a deceived person. I think this cause calls for sober reflection. I really do. What keeps some in the camp of being almost Christian? Maybe, some of the, maybe, maybe this applies to someone here today. What keeps some in the camp of being almost Christian? One thing that keeps people almost Christian and not Christian at all is love of sin. Not just that people sin because we sin, right? We, we fall short. But people who love their sin and don't want to forsake it. Jesus says in John 3, and this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. You guys realize that? That that the reason why people don't come to Christ is because they, it's not because they're trying really hard to and just can't, it's because they love their sin. They don't love him. They love their sin. They might have fuzzy feelings about Jesus sometimes, but they love their sin more. Some people remain almost Christian because they have cherished sins they don't want to give up. Unforgiveness. They don't want to extend forgiveness to others. And Jesus said, if you don't forgive, my Father won't forgive. 
you. Self-righteousness. We, uh, well, J.C. or uh, no, it was the quote from A.W. Tozer. We confess that we are wrong in order that we may be right. Self-righteous people don't like to admit that they're wrong, and they don't come to Jesus admitting that they're wrong. They come to Jesus thinking they're basically good people, and they just need him to help them out a little bit. Some illicit, sinful relationship, sexual immorality of some kind, porn is a huge issue in our culture, of course. People love their sin, and it keeps them apart from Christ. Again, I'm not talking about people struggling with sin, but those who love it and won't forsake it, those who are unrepentant in their sin. And so they remain almost Christian. Another reason is the fear of man. The fear of man, or to put it in more common vernacular, the fear of not fitting in. with those around you, the fear of being mocked for, for strange beliefs. There's a man, I, a young man that I know and, and uh, don't know him that well, but I would describe him this way. He's almost committed to Christ. Sometimes he, he seems like he's, he's running so well, but here's one thing I've noticed over the last few years as I've known him a little bit is he is much more concerned with being cool than with being Christ-like. He cares more about being cool. This is nothing new, of course. I just read this last week, as many, many perhaps of you have or did as well. In John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, Jesus said many even of the authorities believed in Jesus but for fear of the uh, but for fear of the Jews they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue listen to this for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God now i don't know if you heard that but they believed there was a certain kind of belief it's an almost belief They almost believed in him. The fear of man keeps people, many people, almost Christian. Here's another reason. Another reason is love of the world. I realize there's overlap here. Love of the world, though. Love of the world. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, the pride in possessions, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in possessions, this is not from the Father, it's from the world. You guys know the story of Lot's wife, right? God was, was re- an angel of the Lord was rescuing Lot and his family from Sodom, which was, which was going to get fire and brimstone dropped from heaven on it. And God gave them clear instructions. Leave the city. Do not look back. And Lot and his family are on their way out. 
And Lot's wife turns around and looks. I don't think it's because her eyes went in a certain direction. It's because it revealed where her heart was. Her heart was still in Sodom. She turned around and turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus put it this way. Jesus gave us, I should say, the sober warning. Three words in Luke 17. Remember Lot's wife. I remember reading that one time. And those three words just hit me like a bullseye between the eyes. Remember Lot's wife. People, some people, many perhaps, in love with the world remain almost Christian. And finally, some people remain almost Christian because of inconvenience. We live in a world that loves convenience, and we Americans love our autonomy. We, want, we like to do what we want, when we want, and we don't want anyone telling us otherwise. And it's not very convenient to have somebody over us as a Lord and to bow our knees to him. Right? It's not convenient to bow the knee to someone else. It infringes upon our freedom, so we think. He may tell us to do something other than what we feel like doing. He may require life changes I don't feel like making. This was Felix's problem. Remember Felix back in Acts chapter 24 when Paul was preaching to him as well? And, I mean, Paul was laying it on heavy. And Felix, it says that he was deeply troubled. And he says, Paul, um, please go away for the time. In a convenient season, I will call for you. And the convenient season never came. Never came. So many people looking in vain for the convenient season to get serious about Christ remain almost Christian. Nice, generally good-natured people, church-going people, many of them almost Christian. In response to Agrippa, Paul says this, Right? Agrippa says, in a short time, you're going to convert me to be a Christian? Paul says this in response, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You hear what Paul's saying? I want you and everyone else to become fully like me, except for the chains I'm wearing. I want you to know this Christ that I, that I know. I want you to trust in him. I want you to have the confidence in this Jesus that I exalt in. Paul wants, wanted all those in the hearing of his voice. And, and this morning, I want each one of us to be as Paul was, a high-octane, spirit-filled, passionate, persevering, Christ-exalting Christian. Not an almost Christian. Not half in, half out. And so as we sit and ponder this, 
just soberly and honestly, it seems to me that Agrippa is the man that's off his rocker. Agrippa's the crazy man, right? He heard this life-transforming message of Jesus Christ and was content to just come close. Content to be almost Christian. Ken Hughes, a commentator on the book of Acts, said, sadly, if he never came to Christ, Agrippa will have eternity to consider the madness of his response. We need more crazy Christians like Paul who really take the claims of Christ seriously. He is who he says he is. If you're saved, he's call, he really has called you out of darkness into light. He really has made you a new creation. He really has taken away all of your sins. He really has given you his Holy Spirit who lives in you. And he really does have a, call you to a holy purpose and calling. And your future really is bright. And, and you really can lay down. The safest thing to do really is to lay your life down for Christ. And not try to save it for yourself. Because Jesus says if you do that, you're going to lose it. This is, this is true sanity. Or, or to be a crazy Christian in the, in the eyes of the world. But we need more people like that. I want to be more like that. I mean, I, I hope you know that... When I study a passage like this, I mean, not, not always. I don't want to make it sound like I'm better than I am because I'm, 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 a, I'm a massive work in pro- pro- progress. But when I read a passage like this and I, and I think about it, I'm like, oh my goodness, Lord, am I an almost Christian? I don't want to be. I want to be more like Paul, fully in, full of his spirit, Boldly proclaiming Christ, living for Christ in every area of life. No area off limits to the Lord Jesus Christ. No area saying, nope, not that. Nope, you can't touch that, right? Or I want to fit in here, but I also want Jesus, but fully his. Fools for Christ's sake, as Paul says. And the almost Christians here among us today. Maybe you're being challenged today that you are more an almost Christian like Agrippa than a crazy Christian like Paul. I hope that you've been awakened this morning to the peril of almost Christianity. It's a dead end. Literally a dead end. Are you almost Christian? Today, respond to Christ's call to surrender to his lordship. Today, hear the, if Paul was here, he would say, I would that you all would become as I am fully, except for these chains. Fully Christian. Crazy, even. A little strange. Kind of an oddball, because you believe these strange things and follow this person you can't see. And love him more and more each day. Let's pray.